The early days were easy. I basically inherited what was there. And we were so small, everybody hunkered down and, okay, you take care of the accounting. And, okay, by the way, you also should do HR because we don't have anybody for that. And you work in the laboratory and you're supposed to run the plant. And, I mean, everybody just kind of knew what they were supposed to do. I think young entrepreneurs need to find mentors. They need to find people that can help them learn. Not AI. People that have had experience before them that they could look up to. People that have failed and succeeded. My name is Scott Benning, and I'm the former CEO and president of Monosol. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Took six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of her team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Scott Benning took a water-soluble company to new heights and built the films used in Tide Pods. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-sourced edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Scott Benning is a 63-year-old kid at heart who grew up in Buffalo, New York. He got a degree in chemistry and went into the plastics industry. Outside of his profession, he is super active, playing drums in a rock band, racing GT race cars competitively, kayaking, hiking, and golfing. He's been married for 35 years with two older children. Many years ago, Scott joined a small division of a company in 1989. Scott took the company to new heights, developing and selling a material that you probably use every day, the film that wraps Tide Pods. Since retiring from the company, he is advising other companies and helping entrepreneurs through his book titled Formulating Solutions. This is Scott's creation story of Monosol. It's a company that's hard to explain, or it used to be hard to explain. What do you do? Well, we make this film that looks like plastic that we don't call plastic, but it's a polymer film that dissolves in water and disappears. Halfway through that conversation at a cocktail party, people would walk away and say, I need to get another drink. After about 30 years of working, we've built this to the point where now you can say, do you use Tide Pods in your laundry or do you use Cascade in your dishwasher? Well, the film that dissolves that encases that product is what we've developed and what we do. Monosol is a was a division of Chris Craft Industries. 
Chris Craft really was a company that was founded on boats making beautiful pleasure craft. And, and when I joined, they had sold the boat company. And it was now a holding company, essentially, for a huge privately held television network conglomerate. And that was the big business. And Monosol was a tiny little division, which was really the only part of manufacturing that Chris Craft still had. I ended up being very fortunate getting in front of the chairman of Chris Craft, who was, his name is Herbert Siegel. That guy taught me how to run a business, and we took a very little company and made it into a pretty big, medium-sized entrepreneur success. And I ended up having the pleasure and opportunity to buy the company in 1990, then scale it four times over the next 10 years after that. And here we sit today, having sold the business a decade ago to Carrare. We are a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the pie that makes a beautiful organization in what's called the vinyl acetate world in the Carrare world today. So it's a small organization, took 30 years to do it, but went from about 30 people to approaching a thousand at this point in many locations all over the world and a true global business. Tell me about what you would consider the MVP of the film or of the product set that you were making at Monosol. How long did it take you to come up with and what sort of tools were you using to bring it to life? Great question, because no one really knows, but in 1962, the first laundry detergent was put into the marketplace using water-soluble film from Monosol in 1962. I was three years old at the time. Colgate Palmolive put a product out there called Action Bleach, and it went out quickly and failed fast because the world wasn't ready for that type of technology in the laundry sector. What we did in the late 80s is we took all of the trials and tribulations and the failures and the small successes and found a way to scale that to gain an MVP that was worthy of a company like Procter & Gamble to launch a product in mainstream consumer on a multi-billion dollar brand called Tide. And they weren't the first ones. Unilever and a private label company in England were the first companies to actually launch this technology. But the product took many years to get traction in the, in the industrial and institutional sector, or the technology did. And then it took about another 10 years to get into the dishwasher market, the auto dish market. And then almost a decade later to be able to have something worthy, worthy of going into a consumer mainstream product. You know, there's many tools that were required, I'd take, I guess. Organic chemistry was the number one, formulating and getting the chemistry right, because the film has to work with the product it's wrapping, because there's an interaction that takes place. You know, we, we said that the film's alive, there's moisture in it, and there's water in it. And so things are going back and forth in that little pod all the time until it reaches an equilibrium. So getting the chemistry right was tantamount to success. And then process engineering was the other part. I mean, building robust manufacturing systems to be able to make tens and tens and hundreds of millions of these things for the consumer market was absolutely critical. And I think overall, though, if you ask me about the tools, getting the right people with the entrepreneurial spirit together that are willing to contribute their not only their equity, but their sweat equity and knowledge to make the whole thing happen. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? 
One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash code story. With the product, right, you've, you've got it and it's working and you're having some success. And maybe this is, you know, pre-tide or cascade or maybe this is after. I'd be curious to see where you start it. But how did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I'm curious about, you know, how you built your roadmap and, and how you went about deciding this is the next most important thing to build or to do with Monosol. Number one thing that drove the next steps or to drive the roadmap was creating the relationships with the top consumer good companies in the, in the world. I mean, Monosol would have been a very successful organization, even if type pods hadn't happened. But the idea was that was always the holy grail when you're looking at a business and saying, Wow, if we could only do that, if we could only get all the top automotive companies to buy, put their our wheels on their cars, right? Monosol in and of itself was successful in that, in a smaller, low volume, high profit niche market. But then when you go to this next level, the roadmap changed dramatically. Today, unit dose deliveries are the platform for the global market in, in not only laundry, but auto dishes. They're, they were a disruptor. They took over this platform or this form took over for liquid laundry, which took over for powders years ago. I think there was many articles that came out over the last five or six years that said that this was the, the next thing in laundry and it will be for, for the foreseeable future. But the roadmap was pretty simple. I mean, you think about it. The data exists from the consumer companies of how many loads of wash are done in every region around the world, what their machines were like and what 
what the product had to do, how much water do they use when they wash, how often do they wash. I mean, all of that stuff comes from consumer goods companies, and it's amazing how much information they have. The auto dish market was really easy because they they were they're able to find out how many times people actually do wash and how many how many times do they actually do auto dish washing or or wash their dishes with a machine as opposed to hand washing or waiting till the dishwasher is completely full and if you see the advertisements today they say it's more sustainable to do it more frequently because you use cooler water and you know all the the, the demographics. And the logarithms of how consumers work have been developed, and it it was pretty easy to use those key relationships that we had and become an essential partner with all the consumer goods companies, where the roadmaps were different for each of them. Being able to have that relationship where you have that mass of knowledge, and might and skill. Working with us, it really helped us be able to figure out where the heck did we have to go and what was required next. So you've written a book called "Formulating Solutions," and you mentioned these lasting relationships, forming lasting relationships. Tell me a little bit about what you mean there, though,、uh, because you know it could be relationships that are just like you know. Business sales relationships, but I don't think that's what you're referring to in the book. And, and you're talking about more trusting relationships. Give me a little bit more information there. Monosol was an entrepreneurial organization that, as I said earlier, required relationships with all of these large companies to succeed. We didn't have the resources to do what P&G or Unilever or Dow or Dupont needed us to do. We had to rely on partnerships, and I like to think the genuineness of the people that we have and the open innovation environment that we created really built trust. As I've gone through 18 months now of not actually running the grind of running a business every day. And I've written about the trusting relationships. I also start to think now about what does that really mean, right? You know, what does it mean to trust somebody? There's and there's all different levels. There's the business trust of okay, X Y Z company has a mission, they have a goal, they have a need, they have to get to A to B to C, and our job would be to provide solutions and answers for them to allow them to succeed, which then would have us succeed. And the trust at that level could be everybody's supposed to do what they have to do. They make commitments, they execute. I guess I really want to form the, the personal relationships with the people I'm working.、With. I felt like the people I was doing business with, even when times were tough or things weren't going perfectly great, I got to know people as much as I could on a personal level, and that then builds another level of trust. And it goes beyond the transactional business, and it's not easy to do. I mean, some people in organizations put a shield up, and they have rules and regulations. But it goes beyond having the lunches or the dinners or the boondoggles together. It really is using the ground floor of we all have a mission to work together. I would work very hard to be able to have meetings and summits with our customers. Where we could walk in the room and everybody acted and felt like they were on the same team in the same company, and, it, and not holding their cards close to the vest. One of the ways we accomplished that was to make sure that we developed the right type of agreements. 
the legal agreements, the contracts, and the understandings up front. Well, you're not going to get to a roadblock and say, aha, I can't tell you that, or I can't show you that. We attack those things in early parts of developing the roadmap together of to, for success. And we anticipated intellectual property hurdles, how patents would be filed, and how information would be shared and how it would be protected so that the people then sitting in the room or working in the lab or in a factory together didn't have to be burdened with, I don't know if I can tell you that, or I don't think I can share that. So it's a very important aspect of developing a relationship that was success for us. And I think in many businesses, if you can do that up front and have the right types of agreements together and understandings going into something, it's the right way to do it and it's going to make the road much easier to travel. You might think of it as a prenuptial agreement if you want to. Everybody knows what's going to happen at the end. They know how it's what's going to happen during and what's going to what it takes to get to those places. The relationship aspects is actually a really good segue into my next question around team. You in your book you mention you have a whole section around defining organizational culture and and the challenges of working with so many different types of people. How did you go about building your team? And, and, and what did you look for in those people that would indicate that they were the winning people, winning horses to join you at Mosul? The early days were easy. I basically inherited what was there. And we were so small, everybody hunkered down and, okay, you take care of the accounting and, okay, by the way, you also should do HR because we don't have anybody for that. And you work in the laboratory and you're supposed to run the plant and I'll take care of get building the relationships. I mean, everybody just kind of knew what they were supposed to do. But my first step was to bring them together and, and eliminate the silos that they had, even in that small organization. As we started to grow, then there was the need to bring more talent, more professionalism into the organization. We need more people to handle the massive growth that we were having as far as individuals. I mean, if you go from 30 to 50, that's almost double. If you go from 50 to 100 and then to 150, we were at a point where we had 150 employees. And I remember one of our board members saying to me, very good friend of mine, he goes, Scotty, I don't know that you're going to be able to handle this when you end up with two or 300 people. What are you going to do? I was offended that he asked me that, but it's true. Growing an organization and those steps requires systems and it requires professionalism and trained individuals coming in. But I tried to do that and make sure that I found the people that would continue to be entrepreneurial in their thinking. I like to think that I brought people in that didn't want to be part of this massive corporate world, even though we were climbing to become one of those, that still had that family pride and trust and integrity that you almost have in a family business. I mean, Monosol, for many years up until maybe 10 years ago, was almost considered to be a family business. And then a pivotal point in my career was when we had the opportunity to buy the company. And I had to sit back and think which one of these or how many of these individuals that are my part of my lead team do I want to give the opportunity to become a true partner, a financial partner? And those were tough decisions. And I picked, I think, four people that got a piece of the pie and helped us scale the business to the point where we ended up selling it 12 years later. When we did that, this group was not the same group that is there today running the business because they were not the people that were going to go join a global company 
like Carrara with thousands of employees that are going to scale the business four times more than, than when we sold it and de- deal with bureaucracy and, and culture changes and even a more global environment. And so the folks that are running the business today, I brought all of them into the company over the last, I think, five, six years for specific purposes. They are professionals in their own right, in their own acumen, and they're very different than the people that were there when I started, and they're very different from the people that owned the business before we sold it. So I think the the story really is you have to customize the leadership team and the people around you to fit the circumstances. And not everybody wants to come in and be a Dow Chemical, and not everybody can be a mom and pop shop either. Some people work better in different environments, and the matching of that it's tedious and there's risk taking. I didn't bet a thousand and bet a hundred percent on these things. I probably batted about seven hundred. And there were there were times where things didn't go quite right and we had to make changes. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud cost, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vercel edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite in a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech CodeStory. Terso. Welcome to the Data Edge. Okay, so let's move into scalability then. And you have a whole section of your book devoted to to scalability, to scaling. Tell me how you went about that process and how you had to kind of fight and grow your business and your organization as you tried to scale. Scaling is a word that I really never thought of until... I was about to retire and people were marveling at the fact that I grew the business, brought in investors, grew it again, sold the business. And then after I left, I stayed and I scaled the business again. Owners or founders usually, you know, take their cash and run. And I wasn't in a mood to be doing that. I wanted to keep seeing this business grow. So scaling the business, there's there were two key aspects. One I just touched on was getting the right people there. 
I hired the gentleman that's the president of the company today, I hired right after I sold the business. Brought him in, and he did come from Dow Chemical, and he did go to Kellogg Business School. We get him through school to get all the training, and I knew that we were going to need someone that has some experience and the willingness and a desire to grow in a larger organization. And so he's been at my side, growing and growing with the business, and today he's the, the president of the company. The other thing that we had to do was have the right people to put the growth of the business all over the world. We slowly moved from Northwest Indiana. We went from three miles away to 40 miles away to 250 miles away, all the way to England, then to Poland, and there's Japan. Little by little, we scaled the capabilities of the organization to not only be able to have the the headquarters mothership in Northwest Indiana near Chicago, but also be able to deal with the cultural differences, the changes, and the trust of the people that is required to run high-tech manufacturing organizations all over the world. IT comes into place in a huge way. We actually built the plant that's in Poland throughout COVID. I was there when we did the groundbreaking and no one from Monosol at headquarters went back there for over two years until the plant was finished. It was all done remotely, which was a marvel. It was unbelievable. Process technology and being able to continuously improve, but also be able to put manufacturing organizations throughout the world, dealing with language, culture, geography, communications. That was key to figuring out how we would keep this roadmap of success going at Monosol. Scott, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I mentioned it earlier. I can stop just about anybody in the Western world and say, hey, did you ever use Tide Pods or, or something like it? And do you know who created that and made that innovation happen? And they would say, yes, I've used it, but no. And I'd say, good, let me tell you the story. I'm proud of that because for years I had to try to explain what we did. I'm very proud of the fact that we took less than 30 people to blossom into an organization that's pushing a thousand over 30 years and, you know, took a few million bucks in revenue. And now we're what I would call a medium, large size organization. And I'm very proud of seeing those things happen. And I watch you know, around me. And it's pretty cool when I meet people that heard of me, heard of the company, and I can say I, I ran that business for 30 years. I'm also proud of the fact that I like to believe that I've helped many individuals blossom in their careers, whether, and some of them are, have grown and been trained and they left the company, but many of them are there and they're flourishing. Today, I think people feel like if you show your resume at 35 and you haven't been in five companies, you're a failure. Where when I grew up, if you were in five companies, you were a failure by then. The turnover at Monosol is very low. People like to stay, and I believe the company still today is taking care of their people. Financially, benefits, teamwork, camaraderie, and that sense of belonging is there. And I think that's something I drove, and I hope that continues. Well, Scott, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. We had a product, nothing to do with Tide Pods, called TerraLock, and it was a dust abatement solution that we made that was sustainable, very friendly. I mean, you could spray it all over Hawaii, and they approved it. It was 
very safe, very very effective, and the product was really important for the military during the Iraq and the Afghanistan war. Landing helicopters and keeping people from breathing in silica and the sand and everything where the forward fronts were and the camps and everything. And we did a great job on the product. We did a great job promoting and marketing the product. What we tried to do and we thought we had done is to have the product named in the U.S. Defense Department budget as something that should be used by the military. And I failed at working the political arena. I got very, very close to it, but we never got the product listed as a product in the budget. So people bought whatever. They would just use whatever they had to when they were you know, in need instead of having this product called out. It's a little bit like, you know, if you go to Boeing, some of our products are called out and have been for 50 years as the film to use for a certain process in making an aircraft part. Well, they're never going to change that. We didn't quite hit that. And I made the mistake, I think, of having one of my key people that was the proponent and the owner of this product. I had him working on U.S. bases and talking to the U.S. government, and I realized much, much later when I was told that he was not a U.S. citizen, he was Italian and German, and they didn't really like the fact that an American wasn't the one working with them, which is really backwards in a lot of ways. But it was those little things that the forest and the trees, you just keep driving and driving. You do all the market research, and then you realize that I probably should have cut bait on this probably three or four years before I did, even though it's a great product. I frankly still think there's a place for it. It's one of these where I hung on too long, and I think that was a big mistake. And the, the other thing, and, and I want to go back to this trust that I talked about, I've learned a lot of lessons through my career on trusting people. And I can only say that you have to really be careful on who you really, really trust, because there's a lot of fake people out there that I've been buffaloed before, I've been taken, and it's because I'm think I'm very open and trusting. On one hand, you have to open yourself up like that to build those relationships, but you also have to keep your guard up too. So those are two, you know, I've made a couple mistakes in those areas that I think I could have done things different if I could wind the clock back. So let's flip to the future. And you're retired from Monosol, and now you're CEO of MBS2 Advisors. You have a book out, again, that's Formulating Solutions. Tell me about what the future looks like for for you. <laughs> Talking to you is part of it, I think. I was always told that I need to write a book. You should write a book. This is a great story from my bankers, the lawyers, the customers. And about three or four years ago, I realized that I had kept the journals from starting at Monosol 1989, and I still have all of them. And that was the meat that I needed to try to go back and remember what happened when and how did it transpire. And so I had these journals and I thought, I'm gonna start trying to remember what would people care about? What are the topics if I were going to help people? And so I've looked at what am I doing now? I'm trying to give back. I think I've been spending time with friends, colleagues, business people that need advice, need help and doing a lot of it, most of it pro bono. I'm not trying to make a buck doing it. 
But then on the other hand, I think I'm going to be hopefully a very good, productive, eager board member for several organizations. I'm on a couple of them now, and I have to try to put the bit in my mouth and pull the brains back because I want to dive in really fast and have to remember what it means to be on a board of directors and also trying to mentor people. I think the book is the book that I'd hoped or wished somebody would have handed me 30 years ago. There's many lessons and stories in it. I know I have given five times as many books away as as people have purchased. And the the best compliment that I've had on the book so far is that someone has tracked that I gave them a book and they have given it to somebody and it's passed through five people before they got it back that read it in a short period of time. And so that, that's pretty cool that you you know you don't recommend, unless it's your enemy, you go read this book, it's horrible. I think it's a good read and I'm having fun talking about it. Might be another book in, in me, I don't know, but I think really mentoring and coaching as I do somewhat at a university as a trustee for them and looking at what the students do. I know I'm gonna be lecturing there in the fall. I would love to help business school and business people and entrepreneurs or people looking for a way to help think through where do they want to go and how do they get there? Because I've had so many things that I've done and I didn't realize until I sat down and started thinking about what do I really know and what have I experienced and what am I good at and what am I not so good at? So got that and that's really kind of where I'm going. I plan on doing a lot of my uh, racing and golfing and hanging with my wife and family and doing those types of things too and, and enjoying the as as one of my dear friends calls the the next life i'm going to enjoy that so we talked about a mistake a little bit ago but i want to ask this question it's a little different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do different or where would you consider taking a different approach could have been something that worked and probably even worked really well but maybe you'd tweak it just a little bit I think really there's things I would have done. I don't think technically I would have done. I would have made some people decisions quicker than I did. I think on the technical arena, I probably would have brought more horsepower in sooner to try to get some of the chemistry that we needed developed quicker. And I probably, not probably, I would have been a little more careful about some of the relationships that I built and developed and listen to my instincts closer or louder. Uh, I always go back now and think, damn, I knew I should have thought I should have never listened to them or I should have listened to myself. And I mean, that's something that if when you have a gut and you have an instinct of where things should be and how they should go, uh, I think you should really listen to yourself. When I was going to get my business degree at UIC and we would have discussions with these professional marketing slash professors that would come in, I argued with them all the time because I it's like they've been teaching, they haven't been doing. And I always felt that I had this in my gut on where we should go and what we should do. And, and there are many times where I didn't listen to myself as quick as quickly as I should have. So I think... I would have been a little more careful about handling some of the relationships and I would have brought some more technical prowlessness and horsepower and spent a little more money on it sooner. Well, Scott, last question. So you're getting on a plane. 
and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person? Having gone down this road a bit, and maybe it's similar to what you just said, and then maybe it's some of the, the great learnings that you've put in your book, but I'm curious what you would say. I think young entrepreneurs need to find mentors. They need to find people that can help them learn. Not AI. I mean, today, you know, it's like, come on. People that have had experience before them that they could look up to, people that have failed and succeeded. You know, people talk about failing fast all the time. And I quickly say, okay, let's talk about success as well, because I don't want to just hang out with people that know how to fail. Um, I want people that know how to turn those into success. You know, a quote from my book and some of the people and from some of the individuals, and one of them that was running Monosol before I came in the scene in the 60s, they had an upside for a short period of time. And then they had a big market turndown and they lost all their key customers. And he said to me, it's a damn good thing we stuck money away for a rainy day or we would have gone under. And I think about that. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be talking to you today because they, they would have had to close the doors so the idea of betting on the big drug and the billion-dollar industry, if you're really an entrepreneur and you want to grind it out, you need to make sure you don't stretch yourself too thin and you make sure you have something for a rainy day. And I think working with mentors, people that can influence how you think are going to help you think that way. The last part is, you know, when you do have something, protect it. And I talked about getting agreements early on, but it seems like the world today is all about people copying, ripping off, whether it's music or whether it's formulations or chemistry. I think it's very important that people, especially entrepreneurs, realize what they have, listen to their instincts and protect it as they go forward as well. Absolutely. You have a whole section in your book dedicated to that. Well, Scott, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Monosol and all about your book, Formulating Solutions. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.